to film reviews first this evening, as usual on a Thursday. Florence Pugh stars as an English nurse investigating an alleged miracle in Wicklow in the Irish period drama The Wonder. Bros is just your average everyday boy meets boy romantic comedy. And force majeure director Ruben Ustland satirises the super rich in Triangle of Sadness. Joining me in studio to discuss these releases and another little one that we'll mention later on, Dave Hanratty and Gemma Cray. And let us begin uh, close to home with The Wonder. This is adap- uh, adapted from Emma Donoghue's novel of the same name. We're in Wicklow, we're in 1862 and we're talking about a, a young girl here who hasn't eaten for, for four months. That post-famine period is is kind of essential to the story in some ways, Dave, isn't it? Hugely, yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the most interesting parts about this film is the depiction of rural Ireland. And I mean, we're obviously coming off the back of the, I guess, huge success of The Banshees of Inishirin, a film that looks stunning and presents a certain kind of Irish time period to the world. And this is going to do the same thing. I mean, it is going to be on Netflix. I know Florence Pugh was in town for the glitzy premiere mm. last night. And, and was on the programme with us on, on Monday, in fact, herself. Yeah. And I was at the previous week. Yeah, the previous week it was... Uh, and and Sebastian Lelio, the director, was there, and Neve Algar. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, like, well, th- there's a great cavalcade of talent in this. I mean, even in smaller roles, you've got like uh, Kieran Hines, Toby Jones, mm. Brian Fiburn, lots of others. Um, and Florence Pugh dominates the screen. I mean, she's having a hell of a year, and I think she fits right into this time time period. People will have seen her, of course, most recently in the fiasco that was "Don't Worry, Darling." But uh, people will also have seen her in films like Lady Macbeth and Little Women, and so they will be familiar with her kind of, I guess, her visual presentation here. But this is a quiet film. It's a quiet drama. There's a lot of kind of trauma beneath the surface that I guess Irish viewers will be very, very familiar with, and I. Be curious to see how an international audience kind of comes mm. to this. Yeah, because there, there is lots of trauma. The trauma, rather going. There's there's trauma in the stories, the personal stories of several of the characters that we won't go too far into, Gemma. But there's also the fact that we're post-famine Ireland, and the character that uh, Florence Pugh play, is playing has been uh, in the Crimean War as a as a Nightingale nurse. She's come back from the front. She has all sorts of traumas of her own as well. Yeah, she's a brilliant character as well as she's actualised in this because she's so strong, she's so sturdy, she's so rigid in this world of where everybody is is sort of judging. It's all about spirituality. Mm. She's a big consumer, like she's she's shoveling food into her face. She's taking up space and this is not going down well with the very kind of faithful, pious members of the community. She's, you know, in her, she enjoys her own sexuality as a woman as well, which at that time, and she kind of does, does all of this unapologetically Apologetically, and she again kind of self-medicates. So mm. I, I kind of think like she's not af- afraid to live in her body, even though all that trauma is there. Yeah. However, she is she is up against quite a society in Ireland, and quite a quite a close knit community. Particularly, the, she's brought in in effect to see this this young woman who hasn't this young girl effectively who hasn't we are told hasn't eaten for four months and seems to be perfectly well despite all of that. So the the local men want to investigate what's going on. Uh, the local men, as you'll hear them in this clip, played by Toby Jones, Brian F. O'Byrne, David Wilmot, Dermot Crowley and Kieran Hines, the first voice that you will hear. They are talking to Nurse Lib Wright, played by Florence Pugh, and telling her what they want her to find out uh, during her period in Ireland. Anna O'Donnell doesn't eat. If a patient in the hospital refuses to eat, we use force. The girl is not to be forced. Nor interrogated or badgered. But she is also not to be denied food should she ask for it. The girl has lived miraculously without food since her 11th birthday. Miraculously is not how she's done it. The purpose of the watch is to determine exactly how Anna O'Donnell has survived with no food. 
So you want us to watch her? Yes. On the 14th day, you will each present your separate testimony. How long exactly has it been since the last time the girl ate? Four months. That's impossible. So you would think, right enough, that's uh, Florence Pugh, Florence Pugh rather, as Nurse Lib Wright in a scene there from The Wonder. You heard the voices of Toby Jones, Brian F. O'Barn, David Wilmot, Dermot Crowley and Kieran Hines. And also there's a reference there, it's the Dermot Crowley character who says, uh, you will both bring back your reports because it's the nurse and there's a nun with her who has to report back as well, which sets up part of the debate here, religion versus science. That's kind of where we are. Faith versus science, Dave. Oh, 100%, yeah. And there's a tension there because they're not like confer with each other. They're not like communicate with each other or give each other reports about the different, they're taking shifts essentially to watch this girl. Uh, and yeah, that scene, which is a really good scene, it does, I mean, like you might as well have a flashing neon sign behind those five men that just says the patriarchy because... And they're that's... sitting flat, looking straight direct out at the screen and we're, uh, for the most part, focused on the backs of the two women. Yeah, as Gemma was kind of saying off mic, it is like a play there, like a chorus. And like, this is, like I say, it's like, it is a small kind of quiet drama. It's set up as something of a mystery and there are kind of slight horror elements to this as well uh, to the point where you're kind of wondering where it's going to go. I mean, you're waiting for it. It's not like a whodunit necessarily but there is the question of is what's happening real? Is there a supernatural element to this? Florence Pugh's character, of course, plays a medical professional. She's coming at it from the point of view of, as she says in that clip, this is impossible. But the locals and the family of this young girl are convinced that, no, no, she is in fact a miracle child. So the tension becomes, what's really going on? Where will it go? Who has the best interests of the child? And also, crucially, uh, we explore the dangers, perhaps, of devotion and religion. And that is, as you say, at the top of this, the tension that kind of permeates throughout. And the other thing that is that is a tension throughout, I think, Gemma, is this idea of storytelling and who's telling the story because we're going to get the, the nun's version and we're going to get the nurse's version of what's going on with the young girl but also present here is a, a, a reporter character played by Tom Burke and he's going to tell this story in the newspapers so it's all about what is the story who's telling the story and w- what does that story tell us about ourselves and then yeah take it right back and it's the the Chilean director Sebastian Lelio he, um, he's telling our story and at the very beginning, it's set in a framing device where Neve Algar, so if you kind of step back again, mm. it's Neve Algar um, sort of introduces this as a story that's being told. So the very kind of like the framing device of we're on set at the very beginning, which is very unnerving. And halfway through the action, she turns, she stares dead eyed down to the camera and she kind of a little voiceover pops in as if this is her story. So the, the, the perspectives, the shifting yeah. perspectives are always there. And I think the only kind of sturdy character is um, is uh, Lib, but at the same time, you know, can we trust her perspective because she is um, definitely kind of imbibing some? Yeah, and she has her own substance. she has her own traumas uh, at play here as well. Um, it, the other thing that uh, we should mention here that the performances across the board, and in particular the mother daughter relationship, uh, played by real life mother daughter Elaine Cassidy and her daughter. Um, uh, um, oh, her name's gone out of my head. Uh, Keila Lord yeah. Cassidy. Yeah, uh, this is Keila Lord Cassidy. Well. That's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah, Keila Lord Cassidy, uh, she, mother and daughter playing mother and daughter in the film. There's a lovely touch in that, but the performances are great. Yeah, and also like difficult performance for Elaine Cassidy in particular because this character is someone who is, I guess, not one dimensional, but I mean, like she's very like opposed to Florence Pugh's character being there. So mm. you might come away from it without some sympathy for her, but she's in a tough position as her own backstory. Everyone gets a tragic backstory in this, by the way, which is like kind of like slightly laid on a bit too thick at times. Uh, performance wise, though, across the board, excellent. And Keila Lord Cassidy, this is her first film, a real find. 
brilliant. Uh, she's yeah. fantastic as Anna, the, the girl in question at the heart of this. And as, I mean, like, I guess, I mean, like, are we kind of underselling Florence Pugh? We've kind of come to expect her to just be great every time. And she is. I mean, like I mentioned Don't Worry Darling earlier on. If that film works at all and it doesn't really, it's because of her performance, right. which is great. She's fantastic here, but I think ultimately it's all a bit restrained for me. Maybe a bit too much restrained. And I, I wonder just as we, we wrap it on this... Do we need to see it in the cinema? It's only in the cinema for a couple of weeks before it'll be available on Netflix. There's some great big cinematography, big shots in this. Yeah, the visuals are so striking. The sets, the the, the way the colour scheme is. Like in one, in one, it's gritty, it's set in the Wicklow Mountains, but yet those kind of indoor things, they're lit mm. so dramatically. Um, I And I also think it, the sound mix, if you do not have good speakers, I would definitely try and get this because right. it's such a, it's such a otherworldly modern music stars from you Gemma oh definitely four uh, four from you what are you saying Dave uh, three and a half I think it is narratively a little bit undercooked and ultimately uh, you know I'm all for a great story and hailing them but I don't think it fully gets there at the same time though I would agree go see it support it I mean independent yeah. films like this are very important yeah and I'd say her name again Keila Lord Cassidy because I think I'll be saying that name once or twice in the future as well it wasn't off the ground she picked it up after all since <laughs> her mother is Elaine Cassidy let us move on to bros um, to build as your typical boy meets boy romantic comedy Gemma uh, do we need to know anything more about the setup than that it's a romantic comedy? It's a romantic comedy. I would definitely not go see it with your mum um, if, if you're in any way sensitive because it is quite raunchy. It's um, it's very self-aware rom-com in some ways by the numbers. It, you know, you, you, you introduce the love interest, you have the conflict. But in, in another way, it, it does tackle this um, quite lusty world of gay sex and it does it in quite a, a kind of honest, funny way, which is in the very... Apatow way uh, this mm. is set um, but like that as well like one of, one of the funniest moments is when Billy Eichner is standing with his bum towards the mirror trying to take the perfect ass shot for his grinder <laughs> profile well, let's find out who Billy Eichner is who is the character and who might he be taking such a shot to please uh, he's famous for a, a thing he did online called Billy on the Street and he's popped up in stuff like American Horror Story I think he's worked in that kind of field uh, so a stand-up comic I guess like which comes through a lot in mm. this film I mean there's many moments when like he's all but doing it tight five routine to the camera which can be very distracting but he plays this kind of um, I guess neurotic character called Bobby who is a podcaster and a museum curator and he basically is drawn towards this quiet kind of sensitive very uh, built man called Aaron played by an actor called Luke McFarlane who I'd never seen before he's actually mostly been in kind of weird hallmark rom-coms which this film actually skewers constantly Right. so it's, it's you know it's opposites attract can they make it work we're going to mock rom-coms while also being one will right. it all make sense uh, right let's have a taste of then and this is at the LGBTQ plus museum that they're about to open and they want to decide on what to exhibit. You'll hear the, lots of voices here but particularly the Billy, the leading man Billy Eichner and Dot Marie Jones. A little bit of crudity in the midst of it all I think it's safe to say. We cannot afford to push our opening again. People will think we're in trouble. Maybe this whole place could fall apart. We need no ideas for what goes in the final mm-hmm. wing and we need them now. Cherry, go. You know the blue whale hanging in the Museum of Natural History? Yes. What about that, but instead of the blue whale, it's a lesbian? Oh no. Yeah, uh-uh. okay, well, yeah, we can't do that. What if the final exhibit was a recreation of a queer wedding? I like that. Okay, that I don't have. Tomorrow, that is so That's sweet. Good. I love that. And people can come and register for wedding gifts here. You're gonna write that. Oh my God, and no! That is old fashioned heteronormative nonsense. We need to get people to rethink history through a queer prism, not comfort them with another 
gay wedding, all right? It's a museum, it's not Shit's Creek. Oh, I like but Shit's I, Creek. Oh, I love Shit's Creek. That show has oh, layers. Right. Everyone loves Shit's Creek, great, okay. That's who you remind me of, Eugene Levy. Of course they were going to have to mention that particular television series just for the quality of the name of the series itself. Dave, um, is, is that the kind of is that the kind of energy that we're talking about and the kind of comedy that we're talking about the, the whole way through playing pretty much to a stereotype in some ways, does it? Yeah, very much so. I mean, like it, it's it's marketed as like, you know, like the, a major studio releasing like the first ever kind of, you know, multiplex, uh, I guess, you know, depicted gay rom-com. Um, and yeah, like it, it moves at pace. I mean, like it is too long. I will say that like, you know, it's almost two hours long and in my opinion, no comedy should ever go beyond 90 minutes 100 max please uh, and this does kind of wear you out eventually and you're waiting for like oh well, they're going to have to have the conflict now aren't they and that you know the inevitable kind mm. of stuff but I did go with it I mean I, I found I saw with a packed audience and like this didn't really get an audience in the States and Billy Eichner has kind of come out and said well people didn't want this movie and you know like people rejected it so I mean like you can quantify that or maybe you can't I hope people go see it because it does work with the crowd it took about 20 minutes for me to kind of really kind of sink into it there's a really funny Maroon 5 joke at one stage that kind of like unlocked me and from then I was with it I was rooting for the character they're interesting but like I say there are times when I couldn't help but just see Billy Eichner at his laptop writing a monologue and even though he has a really good effective emotional monologue at one point halfway through this again I was just taken out by the writerliness of it all which you know fine that's not a big deal I think it is ultimately a good film and people should go see it Did you enjoy it as much as Dave seems to have done Gemma? Yeah I actually felt like it tackled some really interesting issues about body image and about um masculinity and performative masculinity and um, what is the right kind of queerness in this context and Billy Eichner his character is Bobby is just has spent his whole life being rejected and you do get a sense okay yes it is definitely the writer penning his story and I mean they're so close in in character and tone but at the end of the day like it feels very truthful I think the relationship elements are what worked for me the best and that chemistry between the you need chemistry between the two lovers yeah because at the very beginning it's like oh he's cast this absolute hunk (laughs) against himself so that he gets to make out with him (laughs) and actually you see it's it's, it's the the power dynamic between the two couples, between the the the, the, the subtle intricacies and and how you know Billy or Bobby's character, Billy's character, Bobby is someone who's really kind of reached self actualization in his career. He's he's really established as a person and he's very kind of like out and proud and yeah. who he is. Rather than I think Aaron is just a kind of quiet insular guy who's really working to mm. to meld his his two kind of elements of his personality. So for me, that was the heart of the film, and I thought that was one of the most authentic things about it. I do think those um, those kind of set pieces where it's a bunch of brilliant comedians in a room ad-libbing are very funny, but I do think that took over the dynamic and steered it in All a very right. specific reaction. Starts from you first this nice time, Dave. I'll go three. And I should say as well, the hunk in question, Luke McFarlane kind of stole the movie from me. I almost wish he was the lead character. He's got a very vulnerable face. He's a good actor. And he's he walks away with the whole thing. Right, okay. And stars from you, Gemma? Uh, three and a half. It's silly, it's heartfelt and it's hilarious. Silly, heartfelt and hilarious. That's grand, isn't it, for a Thursday <laughs> yeah. evening? Let's move on then to Triangle of Sadness. A very different um, dynamic at play here. I think the director of the Palme d'Or winning uh, Triangle of Sadness, Ruben Ustland, previously satirised the rich and famous in films such as Force Majeure and The Square. Tell us a little bit about the, because we're in a similar world here, Dave, really, aren't they? The aspiring socialites who open Triangle of Sadness, Carl, played by Harris Dickinson, and Yaya, played by Charlie Dean. 
Yeah, they're a young, beautiful couple, stunning on the outside and racked with insecurities on the inside. And we were introduced to them uh, at their day jobs, essentially being fashion models and uh, with varying degrees of success. She's, uh, I guess, the more successful one of the two. She's the sought after influencer type. And we first kind of meet them having a row in a restaurant about who pays the bill. Uh, you know, maybe we've all been in that situation. I don't know. But these two, you know, who, who, who the world has handed to them because of how beautiful they look. Um, I mean, it's weird because like it's very interesting, long kind of drawn out scene between these two actors. They do it really, really well. But the relationship appears abusive and quite toxic, but they also do love each other at the same time. So you're drawn to this kind of world of, you know, rich people who are like maybe better dressed animals, which Ruben Usland is clearly obsessed with based on Force Majeure, The Square and now this. You could argue, and I'm going to make the argument, that he's turning into a bit of a one trick pony. All right. Well, let's have a listen to a clip that features it, 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 we're at a modelling casting. And I think it's interesting here about we were, you were talking about body shaming in terms of the last movie, but... What is expected from you in terms of working as a model, according to this particular scene at any rate? He's receiving some very precise directions here as he walks along. Can you relax your triangle of sadness? That's like between your eyebrows here. Okay. A little bit more. Okay. And open your mouth so you look a little bit more available. Okay, not that much, a little bit less. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Next, please. You'd want to be in the full of your health to attend auditions like that. I didn't know that opening your mouth made, made you look a little bit more available as long as you don't open it too much. Uh, is that is that the world that we're in? It sounds like a very shallow world that's being portrayed, Gemma. Yeah, so he is objectified from the very beginning and all and throughout along with Yaya. I mean, one of the questions Ruben poses as a director and consistently looks at is the currency of beauty and, and, and how that plays out. I mean, and you, you see the shifting power dynamics. Mm. So they um, end up on this very, very um, pretentious, expensive, super rich uh, yacht along with oligarchs and tech entrepreneurs and uh, arms dealers. So they're, they're in the mixed. And while those people are wealthy with money, their their currency is their beauty. And that's what yeah. got them on the boat. And not only uh, the boat, the captain of the boat is Woody Harrelson, <laughs> who's got all sorts of ideas around <laughs> socialism. Let's listen to a, a conversation between Woody Harrelson as the captain and Zladik Buric as Dimitri. They're exchanging quotes about communism and socialism over their very fancy dinner table, it has to be said. Okay, here we are. Oh, thank you. I have one joke. Eh? Do you know how to tell a communist? Mm. It's someone who reads Marx and Lenin. And do you know how to tell an anti-communist? Mm-mm. It's someone who understands Marx and Lenin. <laughs> it's Ronald Reagan, <laughs> funny guy. Uh, never argue with an idiot. They'll only bring you down to their level and beat you with experience. Mark Twain. Oh, okay. Ronald Reagan. He said also, socialism works only in heaven where they don't need it and in hell where they already have it. <laughs> uh, that, that's pretty huh? good, yeah. yeah. Okay, hold on. Got one here. Oh, 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 no, I have one. Growth, for the sake of growth, is the ideology of a cancer cell. Ah, that's Edward Abbey. 
Uh, there you go, Woody Harrison as the socialist come communist, come not at all socialist or communist captain there in a scene from Triangle of Sadness. Uh, obviously, we're in a world of satire here, Dave. They're all, we heard the kind of lounge music in the background. They're all a super rich yacht eating super super rich food. I was going to say what gave it away. Um, <laughs> and Harrison's character kind of refers to himself as a Marxist. And I think therein lies the problem in terms of that scene because like Zlatko Berich, who's a really good actor, uh, he has a moment where he goes, look at us, isn't this ironic? You know, I'm mm. a I'm a Russian capitalist and you're, a, you know, like an American Marxist. And it's like, you know, no, I, I understand, Ruben. I, I, I got the joke. Uh, I got the joke when you told it 57 times in this movie. And I will say, like, I, I like the movie. I, I think, like, there's parts of it that are absolutely brilliant. There's one big bravura sequence in the middle of this movie that is grotesque. And it is very much where all these... Rich uh, animals become unwitting pigs at the trough. But the film is as subtle as a punch to the face. Uh, it does have tremendous talent. Let's have a moment for Woody Harrelson, one of the most versatile actors working today. And I think it just kind of repeats itself. It hits a certain point that he's done already and arguably better in The Square, for example. And I really wanted to love this. I was with it for so long. And eventually, about halfway through, I was like, is this all you have mm. to say? It is. And we still have another hour and a half to go. Yeah, it would seem, I think you feel the same, Gemma, about the, the Robin Osland. If you're explaining, you're losing. He's not trusting his audience at all. No, but he'll explain something and then explain it again. again and then more. it will happen. It will play out. So there'll be like, you know, the moment about feminism where they're discussing um, gender roles. And then, you know, they'll be at a meal. They'll have it, have an argument about it. And then later it'll swap over and the discussion we brought up again from another point of view and played out on another level. And it's almost sort of he does not trust us. You get that sense where as an audience, maybe an English language audience, it's not trusted because Force Majeure was so much more um, subtle. Um, mm. in, in there's certain moments and it was much more about like, you know, this journey, there's the episodic um, sense is there again. Like like it, it is that kind of thing where it's definitely not a three act structure in, in some senses where it's almost like three totally different worlds brought together by happenstance. But it's, I don't know, yeah. I, I, I definitely get the, the, the sense where he doesn't trust us. All right. Overall and stars from you then on this one, Dave? Uh, I'll go three stars. I mean, ultimately by the end of it, like it has, a, I, I like the ending and I love, I'm, I'm a sucker for like a great cut to credits, like one last mm. shot into the credits. This has that. But afterwards I texted like a, a fellow critic and I was like, I've got a feeling that Ruben Olsen has some things to say about the upper class because it's just <laughs> like, is this the entire career? I hope he does something different next time. All right. Stars, what did you say, sorry? Three out of five. Three. And what are you saying, Gemma? I actually, I, I, I enjoyed it more than that. I thought four because it was bleak it was beautiful and it was brilliantly vile like that that scene that you're talking about oh my god it's, I've never yeah. seen anything <laughs> like it I laughed I will say I did find it funny all right, so, okay, slight difference of opinion. You you were a bit happier at the end of it all, Gemma. Let us move on then. Yeah, you've seen this final one, Dave, All Quiet on the Western Front. Are we in remake territory here or where are we? Sort of. All Quiet on the Western Front is an anti-war text that was written by a former German soldier who served in World War One. came out in the late 1920s and then there was an American film ver- uh, version of it in 1930 and kind of remarkably, this is the first such film. It's a German film. It's coming out on Netflix on Friday and it's quite brilliant. Um, mm. I mean, it's essentially about the, the lies we are told. Like, I couldn't help but think of the Wilfred Owen poem, Dulce et Decorum Est, throughout this movie. And, you know, the, the translation of it is uh, sweet and fitting to die for one's country. And that is the lie that these young German teenagers are sold. It is told from the point of view of a German uh, recruit called Paul Baumer, who defies his parents, signs up for the war in 1917. He's told by older men who, of course, are not participating in the war, that you will be a hero, that this is the best thing you can possibly mm. do. And as soon as they get to the front, it's automatic horror and trauma and it's unflinchingly presented I thought 
uh, obviously this is uh, 1930 was the was the previous film uh, mm-hmm. was it, it's astonishing that it hasn't been remade really before now isn't it I think like uh, what I would put that down to is that for whatever reason cinema has been rather obsessed with World War 2 and with the Vietnam War in particular and we've seen some incredible films and we will continue to but for whatever reason the quote unquote Great War hasn't really been depicted too often obviously we did have Sam Mendes 1917 about two years ago at this stage now I thought that film was uh, I, I didn't love it I thought it was it, it's a technical triumph it's unbelievable but I felt like I was watching technicians do their thing the wonderful cinematography of Roger Deakins of course and actors do their thing it, I didn't quite get immersed by it but with Did you this, get more here? Uh, absolutely I mean I, I, I felt there's a few scenes where they have to kind of break up the momentum and have like political negotiations the great Daniel Bruhl shows up for those All scenes right. but ultimately when you're on the trenches or like in the trenches rather and, and on the battlefield here you really are you really feel it there's no ceremony here there's no glory this is a complete anti-war text and it is incredibly told and really really upsetting because by the end of it I found myself when I left the cinema you could hear a pin drop there's no music over the end credits and even just like getting text on the screen at the end of it I I was moved to tears I thought it was extremely harrowing it really hammers home how senseless war is and it's it's incredibly well shot I will say there are cliches there's even like a scene where a guy shows a photograph of his his honey back home and you're like, okay, I wonder what's going to happen to you. Yeah. But generally, it is right. told with a real conviction. Stars. Oh, four stars. Yeah, a it's, solid, it's fantastic. A it's on, solid four. It's that. on Netflix this weekend, I believe. So. Netflix this weekend, All Quiet on the Western Front. Um, and The Wonder will be on Netflix in the next couple of weeks or other two films then that we were talking about, Triangle of Sadness. And bros, Gemma Cray and Dave Hanratty are reviewers on this Thursday evening. Last time Jean Hanf Karlitz was on the programme with us here, we asked her about how different was the blockbuster HBO TV series The Undoing, which starred Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant, from the source material, Jean's own novel, You Should Have Known. Well, Jean, who is also the author of The Plot and a jury of our peers, has a new novel, The Latecomer. And we now have a chance to talk to her about it before the greedy TV companies get their hands on it and do whatever they're going to do to it. The Latecomer centres around centers around triplet children, much wanted by their mother, Joanna Oppenheimer, but once born, it would seem, they are desperate to get away from each other and to escape each other. Just as they're about to be free of each other and leave for college, there's talk of a fourth Oppenheimer child. And this latecomer is what gives the novel uh, its title. Um, Jean, great to have you with us uh, this evening. Can, can you, I don't know how much, you, how, much, how much you want to explain about that kind of possibility of the fourth child and where the, all of that fits into the story. I, I think I can say a little bit more than that. I, this is not quite as dangerous as as the plot, the previous novel, where we really didn't want the reader to know anything. There were so many secrets that mm. we were trying to sort of protect the reading experience. But I can say that this fourth child is not just any fourth child. It is actually a leftover embryo from the triplets. And this this person, this latecomer, has been literally on ice. Well, probably not literally, more yeah. like in nitrogen or something for 18 years. And, um, you know, this does happen. And it just seems like a, a crazy thing for two uh, parents to decide to do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, can you, can you imagine sending your youngest child off to university and saying, what should we do now? Oh, I know. Let's have a baby and start over. You know, that's that's a pretty crazy thing to do. And of course, the technology is is there, and that's what this that's what this story is is kind of 
uh, the, the basis of it is there in reality that, that this could actually happen. What brought you into that world of IVF, the triplets and then the potential quadruplets? Um, what brought you to that particular world in terms of setting up the, the, the story? You know, it wasn't so much uh, an interest in IVF per se. It was. It really had to do with the way families are formed and how crazy decisions are, you know, these crazy decisions and how they're made. And, you know, what has to be happening in a family like this for this to seem like a good idea? But I think that the question that really got me going was, what is it going to be like for this late child, randomly selected, you know, one of four embryos in a petri dish uh i'm gonna throw this one into the freezer and um at the time it's this preserved embryo Mm. that is is thought to be the one that's going to finally be born because all previous efforts have ended in failure and it it turns out to be quite the opposite but it really was more a question of the weirdness of families which is an eternal theme for any novelist. For sure. But when you when you take triplets as well, you know, the presumption if, if you're told, oh, here's a novel about triplets, uh, you, you might think, oh, well, they're all going to be, you know, one of them will know when the other one's thinking something, when they're feeling yeah. something, <laughs> when they're, no matter what's going on in one of their lives, all three of them will be emotionally involved and totally tied up with each other. These are yeah. the most. These are the most disparate set of triplets. That's right. No, whatever the opposite of what you just said is. I mean, these three just despise each other from from the get go, and they they travel so far from one another that you wonder what is it going to take to to bring this family into some kind of well family, and mm. what it takes is all the stuff I, I'm not going to talk about because there are plenty of twists in this book it's not quite the thriller that um, the undoing was or mm. the plot was but I mean there there are plenty yeah. of plot twists yeah but there, there, there is that aspect I suppose of you know the the triplets being so different from each other oh, people when they're when their children are born often go I'm amazed at how different he or she is from the other sibling and yet that parent feels I'm so different from my own brothers and sisters you know right. uh, I, when you got the triplets to get that difference of voice in them? Was it almost like thinking of them in terms of three totally disparate and separate characters? Was that how you had to treat them? Oh, completely. I mean, one of them, uh, in the first pages, they're kind of shortcut defined as the weird one, the smart one, and the girl. And (laughs) those three, you know, one of them becomes a right-wing ideologue. One goes off and tries to become a Mormon. He's Jewish. Uh, the third has a career cleaning houses. I mean, they're, they they could not be more different. And what it's really going to take is this sort of mystery secret. Mm. I mean, the, the triplets don't even know about this other person. Yeah. It, this person sort of sprung on them. But, but that's just one of the many, many secrets um, and withheld information in this family. So it's really, it was really, I won't say it was fun because this is the hardest book I've ever written, but when I realized that I was going to manage it and I was, it was actually going to happen, it was going to work, I was so elated and I don't think I've ever been so satisfied. Yeah, um, that, you said it was the hardest book you've ever written and I, and I did read that you had in fact you hadn't abandoned it, but you'd quite definitely put it to one side for quite a long period of time. Well, what happened was that it, it kept getting rejected. It, it got rejected by my editor multiple times, and and she wanted to publish it. She just felt it wasn't there. And I, 
I'd gotten to the point where I just was banging my head against the wall. I, I had no idea what to do. I wrote hundreds of pages that ended up, you know, not being used. And then I had this kind of crazy meeting with her in which I, uh, we were talking about the book and what was wrong with it. And I heard myself telling her in a completely different story about another book that I was literally kind of making up on the spot. And it was the book that became the plot. And she, she said to me, I'm going to buy both of these books, which in itself was incredible because she'd been rejecting uh, the latecomer for quite a while at that point. She said, I'm going to buy both these books and I'm going to tell you to put down the latecomer, just walk away from it. You need to get some distance from it and write that other book that you were just telling me about. And then the pandemic began a few weeks later and I was in, um, in, a, in a house in upstate New York um, that I have with my husband, Paul Muldoon, and he was literally downstairs on the phone with Paul McCartney writing the lyrics, and I was upstairs writing the book that became the plot, and that went on for about, mm. I mean, I wrote that book in about four months, which was about as different from the experience of attempting to write The Latecomer as, you know, as you can get. I have but to, it was I, only, I, I, sorry, I, go ahead. I, 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 I have to say, there aren't many people who can drop my husband, Paul Muldoon, was on the phone to Paul McCartney talking yeah, about the it was, a, it was a very exciting time, and, and there were times when I would, you know, I would hear them. I would hear that voice um, floating up the stairs, and I would just <laughs> put put my computer down and go sit at the top of the stairs and just listen to them talk a little bit. But it was a very, very um, productive and creative and terrifying. I mean, I don't want to underplay yeah. how furious and terrified I was because I am a very fearful person. Um, I was extremely angry at um, some of the decisions that had been made that that were putting us all in that situation. Um, and yet, uh, you know, I have never written a novel in four months and I don't expect to ever again. And I don't particularly want to ever no. again because yeah. I don't want there to be another global pandemic. Yeah, well, let me let me let's let's get back to let's get back to the late comer. <laughs> in fact, I was mentioning when you were on with us before, I know we started asking Paul was on with you at the time, Paul, and we started asking him about the Hugh Grant character, of course, uh, in, in <laughs> You Should right. Have Known, <laughs> you kind of the, the psychopathic husband, essentially. And um, the husband here, Sallow. Uh, is or sorry, yeah, the the husband here is, is quite a bit of work. Very hard to work out who he is. In fact, it is, it is. Um, and in fact, I was well into writing the book uh, before I figured out who he was. But I'll tell you, one of the key moments that helped me to understand him was actually an episode of Antiques Roadshow um, that I happened to watch in the UK one night. Uh, many years ago, and and there was this incredible story about this this husband and father who was no longer living. His uh, widow and child, uh, adult child, had brought his collection of English silver into the antique roadshow, and every time the appraiser brought a piece of silver out of the literally a garbage bag, and started raving about how brilliant it was and how extraordinary a collector this man was you could see the widow and the son get more and more upset. And of course, I wanted to understand what was going on in that family. Mm. And I read about them. And apparently this father, you know, the, the, his silver collection was the great passion of his life, but it was a passion that he had not shared with his family. And they were sort of getting to know this about him on live TV, or maybe not live TV, but yeah. they were devastated. And I just thought, that's the guy. Yeah. That is the person I'm writing about. Uh, in in Salo's case, it's not, 
silver, it's the art collection that he assembles for his private use, um, does not share with anybody. And, uh, you know, that when I understood, when I saw that, you know, story about that family, I, it just kind of clicked into place. And I I must say, obviously, we have a book about triplets. It's in three parts. You've given us the double name drop of Paul Muldoon and Paul McCartney. You might as well give (laughs) us, you might as well give us the trio of main name drops now in that you needed somebody to advise you on the whole art world that you were going to set. Oh, that name. (laughs) That name, please. You can drop that one now. Okay, I'm happy to drop it. I I have pre-approved to drop this name. There are a couple things that I'm always worried about writing about. I'm not knowledgeable about them. They are both in this book. One is money and the other is art. Um, And I I fumbled along by myself with the money. But when it came to the art, um, I'm friendly with Steve Martin, who, in addition to all the other things he does, is a passionate and knowledgeable collector of modern art. And uh, we went to lunch together and I said, here's the situation. You have this man who is collecting art. He's not collecting for posterity. He doesn't want to share it. He's not investing. He doesn't need the money. Um, He's just buying paintings that make him feel a certain way. And the catch is that every single thing that he purchases 50 years later is going to be worth a bloody fortune. So mm. it was it was almost like a puzzle yeah. for him. And I think he really enjoyed himself. Yeah. And, and together we designed this fantasy art collection for this part. <laughs> and of course, he'll want to be cast if it does make it to, to the screen in some way. I don't think so. I'll let you fight that battle another uh, another time. However, the, the art is important in that it kind of is, it's a kind of almost a spiritual experience for Sallow. And the other thing that um, I I thought you were going to say the second thing that you didn't know much about was the Mormon faith. Well, you may oh, not. Oh no, have... I know plenty yeah. about the Mormon faith because you did yeah. loads of research. Tell us about uh, the, the character of Lewin and how you went about finding more and more out about the Mormon faith and, and particular rituals of that faith. You know, I I've always been aware of the Mormon uh, Church, but I really became fascinated by the by Mormon church history, and especially its history in upstate New York. And I began to drag my poor husband up there to a place called Palmyra, where the church began. And until a couple of years ago, uh, the church put on this incredible religious pageant every summer with hundreds of people taking part in it. And it was just from a theater perspective, and I'm I'm very interested in theater as well. It's an extraordinary thing, almost like, you know, that German town where they put on the, you know, the passion play every year. Except this is the Book of Mormon. And it was just incredible. And I went four or five times. I am a devout atheist. I have never come close to the kind of religious experience that my character um, comes very close to. But, you know, it's a fascinating story. It's an American story. And I'm far from the only... um, Jewish person, in fact, to become yeah. fascinated by by Mormon history. Let me fi- so finish. That, yeah. yeah, and, Sorry, and, that, and that research, I, I, I can imagine, was was very interesting. Just being part of that. One final question then about how did you go about uh, researching the totally right wing college that uh, <laughs> the the super intellect that the the smart one, as you refer to as Harrison. Uh, I was going to say the oldest of the triplets, but the smart one of the triplets. He feels like the oldest of the <laughs> he triplets. Does, he <laughs> does feel like that. Um, how did you go about finding out about that? And because it allowed you to open up all sorts of debates around identity, around race, around mm-hmm. political correctness, all of those ideas. 
Yeah, well, I should start by saying I'm an equal opportunity maker of fun uh, when it comes to human uh, excesses. There's 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 quite a lot of fun to be made of the progressive education yeah. that's discussed in the novel as well. But um, what are right mayors for if not for us to make fun of, as Jane Austen would certainly have said if she were living today? Um, the fictional college, which is called Rourke, and that should be resonant for anybody, anybody who knows their um, Ayn Rand, um, is semi-based on a real place uh, called Deep Springs, which is not a, a, a right-wing kind of ideological establishment, but it was until very recently an all-male, two-year, tiny rural college in which the students, um, you know, raised the animals and slaughtered their own food and did the farming and did all the hiring and all that stuff. So um, you had to be incredibly smart to get in there. And then from there, you went yeah. to places like Harvard and Yale. So I just picked it up, moved it to the other side of the country and, and made it. Off you went. Well, you had fun <laughs> with the right wing college and you had equally as, as much fun and as much satire with the left wing liberal college as well. Jane, lovely to speak with you this evening. Uh, uh, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. And I really appreciate your having me back. Not at all. That's Jean Hanf Korolitz talking to us about her latest novel, The Late Comer, which is published by Faber. As the traditional music revival explodes in Ireland's cities and towns, a new TG Cahar series, Kjolorokt, takes a deep dive into the grassroots of the regional styles. Presenter and musician Diren Niglachain heads off with her fiddle on her back to find out what's happening at the heart of the traditional Irish music scene in four different areas around Ireland. She goes to Dundalk, West Limerick and North Clare, but in the first episode, she's checked out what's on her own doorstep in Dublin's north inner city. Delighted to be joined by Darren Glacken uh, on the programme right now. Did you feel poor old Dublin was left out, Darren? I got the impression from that first episode that you feel it doesn't get enough praise, perhaps, in terms of its role in, in the traditional side of things. Well, do you know what, John? I, te- I spent my life going around to traditional music festivals and I always have this argument with people because I suppose we have such established traditions in areas like um Luachra or West Clare or East Galway or Sligo Donegal. And uh, they often think that uh, in Dublin, maybe that we don't have as long established uh, tradition. So I suppose I had a bit of a point to prove. I wanted everybody <laughs> to know that that we that we have just as good music uh, and and just as stronger tradition. So I was delighted to get the opportunity to do that. Yeah, well, as as one from outside of Dublin, <laughs> I suppose <laughs> I, I might make the argument that James Kelly touches on this. James Kelly, um, who's been mm. living who's been living in, in America now for years, but has still has his Dublin accent stroud. And oh, and, absolutely and strong. He talks about. I, I think you you talk to him about uh, about the music, and he talks about. Mm. Well, Dublin music is kind of country music, or traditional music is kind of country music, isn't it? And he's talking about the idea that, in fact, a lot of people who live in Dublin are one foot away from some somewhere outside of Dublin. He's talking about that influx of country people, I guess, into the city with their music. 
Of course. Um, you know, I suppose, really, this is a, it's a deep-rooted thing, isn't it? I, th- yeah. I think people who aren't from Dublin are very suspicious of the dubs. And, but really, we actually are just all, um, you know, by extension, country people who have probably come in and settled in the city and have been here. Some people have been here for a couple of generations. I myself, my own mother is a Cork woman, uh, but I'm a proud dub. So, uh, th- of course, there's an element of that in it. But, you know, I, we can't publicly acknowledge that either. Uh, but, but no, look, that's very true. And I think that that definitely came across in the programme. You know, we, we went up to the cobblestone uh, and met Tom Mulligan there, who has a really strong connection with Leitrim. Um, we met a, a load of young musicians who, you know, have, have connections to Cork, to Kerry, to South Armagh. Um, we met, as you said, James Kelly. And um, so there's definitely that there mm. as well. And, you know, that's, I suppose, the richness of Dublin music is that we have that influx of um, country people who have come over generations and who've honed the tradition. And more recently, um, people from all over the world who have added to the traditional music discourse in the city. And do you know what? It, it just richens the well, doesn't it? Yeah, and I, I, I guess in, in your own case, we're talking about music coming down both sides of the family, really, aren't we? Mm. Oh, listen, I know there was no escape for me, really. Uh, the, I, I couldn't have done anything else. I, I, I was lucky enough that I learned music from my father, um, who in turn learned it from his father, who's a proud Donegal man. Um, and there'd be the Donegal side. And then my mother comes from the Moosecrigueltacht of Coulé and her own father, um, Sean O'Reilly, was a, a, a great traditional musician and composer. So, yeah, there was there was no escape mm. for me, really. I was doomed. Yeah, but you, you, and it's important because this, I think this this is pretty much what you're saying. I don't want to minimise mm-hmm. it down to a single sentence, <laughs> but it is this idea that the tradition has to move on. I mean, I'm thinking of, there's a point in it when uh, 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 the singer John Francis Flynn is singing his version of My Son Tim with a wonderful mm. electric guitar accompaniment going on in the background of it comes louder and it's a bit like a drone initially, but then it becomes its own thing. And I think what you're saying here is that when you come into the city like this, you have to let all the contemporary influences get in to the music as well. Yeah, totally. And I think like, you know, the likes of John Francis, uh, who's uh, a, a great pal of mine and I've, you know, played with him all through the years and uh, watching him, I suppose, as a traditional musician, push the boundaries a small bit and, and, and you know, dabble in this kind of electro music mm. as well that he's pulling into the tradition. Uh, it's so interesting. And the thing about it is, you know, I suppose there's a lot of um, maybe with traditional music, people are very reluctant to let that side of things come in. And, and I think it's a testament of true artistry when you are able to pull on these contemporary influences and introduce yeah. that into traditional music, but that you don't have to compromise anything from yeah. the integrity of traditional music. And it's such a fine line. Uh, and it's not one that I figured out myself, but I, you know, when I see artists like John Francis Flynn and others um, like Ono Canavan, and, and these people who are coming out through this new revival that we're seeing in the city, they're really able to yeah. to play both sides really well. It's a touch of class. It's a very difficult thing to do because it, it you know, a lot of the times maybe uh, people go too far one way or the other. Uh, but I was so delighted that, you know, we were able uh. to give the likes of uh, John Francis Finn that, um, you know, show people, I suppose, all the really class stuff that is going on in the city. Tell me a little bit and and tell people a little bit about about Mm -hmm. Sorokhani Scully. Again, a great tradition in her her heritage. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, Sarah's grandfather, Seamus McMahona, he, he actually taught me my my first few Shanlo songs. Um, in I went to him for classes when I was a teenager for um, a brief stint, but he was an amazing collector uh, and, and musician himself. And he was, I suppose, you know, he was knocking around during the first folk revival uh, that we had here in, in the 60s and, and 70s. And uh, it, he's known all over the country and probably an unsung hero. Mm. Um, you know, he, he added so much and he, he got collected so much from really he went in he's a Masnadina and he spent time with all these communities and um, she's such a testament to the yeah. talent and contribution that he made God she's such a talented yeah. musician let's listen and, let's listen to a little bit of her actually because mm. she's, she's an extraordinary player Just a little bit of the piping there of yeah. Sarah Kani Scully, and she's a uh, part of this uh, this series that we're speaking about this evening. Kjolorok with uh, Dirin Niglakan, the presenter of of the story itself. Jara and Claire, Dirin, chain to Gaji a Piper's Corner. Ochina will Gokrod Lefall Trivian Nagelige. Keko Tato Kazavisha Shindicha. Well, we're listening to Karen Moore, Clina, Ling about the Potts, Agus, you know, Tahnigo Murha, Sailor Fad, Sean Potts, Agus Ganarsa, Inian Ellen, Agus. Isoha Ger Gerbiad um Eshimlar on Skielshin Willisgut on the the Clinton Colvery and Laclia Agus Gowilamid Agus Gorowmer Bader um Snam to Hart a Braher and the Clintishin Hunan Tradition the Umper Ragin Hilglonella Neil me to Hillib we have Sledia Achtoshiat Fos Aun Agus Toshiat Fos Lauder Agus uh if you miss a marvoon torqueol egg ellen pots near husband she shines on on little so we yes fit her hair and son and it's marvano yeah it's a and hybrid marriage arthur um and you you ask her a question actually as well you ask her about the name of her violin do you have a name for your own violin i wondered when you asked her about the name of hers Oh, well, no, do you know what? I don't because I I have such a, a love-hate relationship with my fiddle. It takes uh, it takes over so much of my life. I think if I personified it, that'd be me totally gone over yeah. the edge. Uh, so it's good to keep some boundaries there, Sean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so you're you're off then in the in the upcoming, and, and Tommy Potts comes across as one of your absolute heroes, we should say that oh, as well in, in that, in that first God. episode. Yeah. And you'll be heading off to uh, Dundalk, West Limerick and North Clare. Again, Perhaps not the obvious places. Was that what you chose? Yeah, that was it. You know, this was actually, uh, I suppose, uh, ignorantly enough, I thought I had kind of knew it all with traditional music because I've spent my whole life knocking around mm. that scene and, and I just devour it uh, in my spare yeah. time professionally and everything else. Well, it was as much a learning curve for me as I think it will be to people <laughs> at home. All my right. God, I've I've been cracked stone mad from all the music that I got, Okey especially in, in West Limerick. Yeah. Great. Well, listen, Gormila Magot has fell in the presenter of Kyororok, which starts this Sunday, 9.30pm on TG Cahar. And mention-